When I was in uh, year 10 at high school, I spent uh, six months uh, as an exchange student at a, at a boarding school in Canada. And during the time that I was there in the dormitory, uh, I got involved in what you might call a, a practical joke war, I guess, with another student in the dormitory. To be honest, I don't remember how it began in the first place. Uh, but I do remember filling his shoes with shaving cream and waiting patiently at the end of my bed, pretending to read a book, uh, waiting for the cry of surprise and indignation when he put his feet in his shoes, getting dressed in the morning, and discovered my little trick. Unfortunately, I was a bit overly zealous with the shaving cream. It was poking out, and he noticed it, and uh, quietly cleaned it out, climbed out his bedroom window, and so I sat there waiting for 45 minutes and missed breakfast that morning before I realised what had happened. I also remember the dreadful feeling for the next week, waiting and watching as I walked through doorways, looking for buckets of icy cold water and other things, just waiting, knowing that payback was going to come my way. And I certainly remember how long it took to clean out the shaving cream from every single drawer in my bedside table and to wash every single piece of clothing that I possessed after he paid me back. And it was at this point that I thought, enough is enough. We need to call a truce here. We need to apologise to each other and we need reconciliation rather than a state of war. Now, on the scale of human conflicts, that's pretty minor, isn't it? But it illustrates the dilemma that we often face. Someone does something to someone else. There's some harm or some insult, some offence is caused, and there needs to be a response. We feel like we need to pay them back in some way. The wrong needs to be matched with a wrong. We need to stand up for ourselves. And before long, it descends into outright warfare. You don't have to look very far for these sorts of conflicts next-door neighbours having an argument about the location of the fence. One person saying, the boundary line has been moved five centimetres this way and I'm losing out. The other person saying, well, there's no way that I'm going to pay for a galvanised steel fence. Forget it. Schoolyard fights where whole year levels get divided into sort of two parties at war against each other. Uh, one side supporting her because there's no way he should have said those rude things about her or supporting him because the... the pictures that she posted about him on Facebook were just cruel as a response. And that's just when we're dealing at sort of the personal and local level. We could talk about, couldn't we, disputes between racial groups, disputes between nations, where a past wrong sits festering between groups and there can be no ongoing relationship other than mistrust, hostility and hatred. In our own context in Australia, there's an ongoing tension, isn't there, between Indigenous Australians and white Australians because of the dispossession of land that occurred, because of the removal of children from their families uh, and even worse, atrocities like rape and murder. Indeed, as Australians, when we hear the word reconciliation, this is the context that we often think first and foremost in, isn't it? The need for reconciliation because of these things that sort of sit there in our own context unresolved. Like it or not, we are in fact agents of division. 
We're all involved in conflicts of varying levels and intensities. Uh, we often initiate conflicts, if we're honest. We retaliate when we're insulted, and that inflames conflicts. We can perpetuate conflicts. We can be unwilling to forgive and to let go of things that people have done to us. And sometimes we can be unwitting participants in conflicts and divisions that have been going for centuries. We weren't part of it when it started, but we're the recipients of that sort of conflict and we're left with a way that we need it to be resolved. Now, I don't know how you feel about wearing a sticker. I, I feel uncomfortable having a sticker on me which says Agent of Division. On one side, I've got my name tag which says Tim Johnson. On the other side, it says Agent of Division. That's not how I want to be known. That's not an identity that I want to have. It's not comfortable. And yet, if we're honest, all of us have been involved in conflicts and we have, in fact, played a role as an agent of division in one way or another. So the question is, what is needed? Where we have conflict, where we have division, how is it going to be resolved? How is it going to be sorted? And the answer is reconciliation. Where there's division, where there's conflict, there's a need for reconciliation. That is, there is a need to re-establish a positive relationship, to restore a friendship for the hostility between the different parties to be removed. Over the last couple of weeks at St John's we've been looking at the cross of Jesus and we've been looking at it at different angles, looking at different images, words, ways that the Bible speaks about what the cross means. And today we want to focus on this particular aspect of the cross, the language of reconciliation. How is it that the cross of Jesus brings reconciliation, restores relationships and actually sets us up to be people who are not agents of division but at work in the world to bring reconciliation between people. Uh, in our Bible reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the word that was used repeatedly was the word reconciliation. The cross there is described as achieving reconciliation between God and us. Uh, now, as we've seen, reconciliation is a relational term. Uh, it's a term which explores what the cross achieves in a very personal sphere. If we're going to talk about the cross bringing reconciliation, we're talking about relationships. We're talking about personal relationships, family relationships, communal relationships. So as soon as we start saying that the cross is about reconciliation between people and God, it acknowledges straight away that God is a personal God. If we're going to say there's a need for reconciliation, then that acknowledges that God is personal that he has designed the world in such a way that he wants to be in relationship with people. Now that might surprise you. Uh, many Australians, something like 80%, say they believe in God, that there is a God. And yet for lots of people who would tick that sort of thing on the census, for them, God is more like a, a force or a power, some sort of, sort of cosmic force out there. Um, a bit like the movies in the movie Star Wars, you know, the force, let the, may the force be with you, that sort of vague, impersonal notion of God. But the Bible does speak of God as being personal, a personality, someone who knows us and who wants us to know him. 
someone who wants to enter into an intimate relationship with people and has in fact designed each one of us for relationship with himself. You may not believe that. That may be against your experience of God. You might sort of feel, no, for me I feel God is non-existent or God is distant, God is absent. It's not surprising that you may feel like that because it's actually a symptom of what we're talking about today, that the relationship between God and people has been broken. Uh, Our rejection of God, our living our lives independently of him, has led to a sense of alienation between people and God. A bit like that long-lost cousin that you argued with 20 years ago and you haven't seen since. Are they even alive? What are they doing? Do we even care? And so too, the Bible says that our relationship with God is broken. There's a need for reconciliation because there's a state of hostility between God and us that needs to be dealt with. What's very clear in this Bible passage is that the one who initiates the reconciliation between God and us is God. So in verse 18 we read, All this is from God who reconciles us to himself through Christ. And again in verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. In both cases the active subject is God. God is the one who brings reconciliation. God is the one who takes the initiative. It is God who does the reconciling. He's the active party who deals with the problem and works to restore the relationship. This is in perfect accordance with what we know from the the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, which puts it like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world. God acts out of love. God takes the initiative. God does the work of reconciliation. Now the incredible thing about that is that it's actually God who is the one, who is, who is the aggrieved party in the nature of this broken relationship. It doesn't come through strongly in our passage from 2 Corinthians 15, but the Bible elsewhere is quite clear that the cause of the problem between people and God is caused by us. We humans have rejected God, we've rebelled against him, despite his good and loving rule over us, making us in his image, We push him away, we refuse to acknowledge his loving rule and we break the relationship. Now in human relationships, if a human relationship is is damaged, you'll often hear people say, and I've said it myself, well they started it, so it's up to them to sort it out. Not so with God. We started it, (laughs) we caused it, we're responsible for the broken relationship but God, out of love, takes the initiative to fix it. In another great reconciliation passage in the New Testament, Romans 5, which we looked at last week, uh, Paul says that while we were still his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. I mean, it's not like we even met him halfway. We're enemies of God. God was rightly angry at us, and yet he takes the initiative out of love and reconciles us to himself. How does he do that? Again in verses 18 and 19. All this is from God who reconciles us to himself through Christ. Verse 19. In Christ, 
God was reconciling the world to himself. God initiates reconciliation. God brings reconciliation about, but he does it through Christ or in Christ. God um, works through his son Jesus who uh, comes to earth willingly and openly going to the cross in order to achieve reconciliation. There's a perfect harmony here within the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son working together with the same plan, with the same love for humanity to bring reconciliation about. But how does Jesus do it? Verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Now, if you're talking about uh, counting, the word that's sort of used here in the Bible is an accounting term where you keep a record of things. You keep a record of the purchases or the income or the expenditure. You write them down, you note them, you keep good bookkeeping records. And we can do a similar thing like that with wrongs, can't we? When I was in primary school, I remember the teacher uh, putting marks on the board. If the class did five things wrong, you know, they added up and you got kept in at lunchtime. When I was at high school, we had these little cards that we had to keep in our pockets and if you mucked up in class, the teacher would write down an offence on the card. It was called getting carded. Um, and if you got carded five times through the week, then you stayed back for a Friday afternoon detention. And we can keep a record of wrongs in our relationships as well. We might not write them down, but we count them in our head. All of the times that that person walked past me without speaking to me. How many times they didn't do the dishes this week? How many times that they forgot a birthday or an anniversary? Oh yeah, we keep a record of wrongs. We often count up the wrong things people have done to us. Well, imagine God's list of wrongs. Imagine if God was writing down all of the things that I had done in my life. I shudder to think about that list. But no, we're told here that in reconciling the world to himself in Christ, God is not counting people's sins against them. Through Christ, we're told, these wrongs are no longer kept on the account, they're removed and they no longer stand against us. Now, how's that possible? Does God just forget about them, say that these sorts of things don't matter? No. He deals with them. Verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Rather than counting our sins against us, they're counted against Christ instead. Jesus, who was completely without sin, who lived the perfect human life in perfect accordance with God, in loving relationships with people that he came into contact with, is made sin for us. In some mysterious and powerful way, in the heart of that moment as Jesus hung on the cross, the sin that was rightly ours, the cause of the broken relationship with, between us and God, is taken on by Christ and borne by him in our place. It's not forgotten about, it's dealt with by him. It's not counted against us because it's accounted for by him. 
Here, as Jesus hangs on the cross, a wonderful swap and exchange is taking place. Our sin is taken from us and given to Christ. Christ's righteousness, his perfect life, is accredited to us. This is so stunning that it almost defies words. A letter that we have from the second century reflecting on this reality puts it like this. Oh, sweet exchange, oh, unsearchable operation, oh, benefit surpassing all expectation, that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressions. This is the way that God reconciles us to himself. Our sin, our rebellion against him is laid upon Christ in our place. We damaged the relationship and made God an enemy, but God, out of love, repairs the relationship through Christ and deals with the very problem that lies at the heart, our sin. So we've seen the incredible initiative of God, his grace in bringing reconciliation, how he does that through Christ. So we see that there is actually nothing standing between us and God. There is no source of hostility because it is dealt with in Christ. But there is still a question of our response to that. Verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. There is still a need for us to respond to the reconciling work of God. We still need to come to Christ to place our trust in him and to make him our Lord. You see, apart from Christ, standing on our own, our sins are still counted to us. But in Christ, submitting to his lordship and rule, our sins are counted to him and his righteousness counted to us. You see, despite what God has done in Christ, it is still possible for us to carry on our petty fight with God. We can ignore his work of reconciliation. We can continue to act as his enemy or continue to act as if life can go on without him, as if he doesn't exist, as if he isn't personal, as if he doesn't want to know us. There's actually a need for us to acknowledge what he has done and to receive it in order to be reconciled to God. That's why Paul says so urgently here, be reconciled to God. There's nothing left to do but for us to respond. All the work has been done, all the initiative has been taken, all the cost has been borne by God. Why continue to treat God as an enemy and ignore him when he's gone to such lengths to restore the relationship? Be reconciled to God. Maybe you've never thought about that before or never done that before. Can I urge you on this Good Friday, as we hear these words echoing in our ears, to be reconciled to God today. What is stopping you entering back into that relationship with God and receiving the reconciliation he offers? But if you are someone who has been reconciled to God, then the implications of this passage are also very clear. As we gather today, we need to marvel again at the initiative of God 
and what he has done to reconcile us to himself through Christ. And to focus again on the relational nature of this truth. This is personal. We were enemies of God, separated from him, and yet he's reconciled us to himself. We have peace with God. He's adopted us as his children. We have access to him. So we need to invest in that personal relationship knowing the cost at which it was won back. If you become dry or distant in your relationship with God, today is a good day to return again to the cross where reconciliation took place and to start again. In Christ, God is not counting your sins against you. In Christ, you have the righteousness of God. There is no barrier between you and God to stop you coming to him. The relationship has been restored by God and there's an open invitation from God to come. Will you come? Will you enjoy that relationship with him in its fullness? Will you talk with him, listen to him, receive from him, follow him? The work's done by God through Christ. The work's been achieved on the cross. Enjoy the fruit of it. Enjoy the fruits of reconciliation in open, honest, genuine relationship with God. And if we're someone who has done that, received the reconciliation with God through Christ, then we've got a new role to play in this world. You see, this job title, this description, agent of division, no longer applies to us. We've got a new job description, a new title. Rather than being agents of division, as this passage says, we are now to be ambassadors of reconciliation. What God has done in your life, you are to share with others so that they may also know it as well. And having been reconciled with God and seen the initiative and the cost that he took to reconcile us to himself, we also are to be initiators and not count the cost of being ambassadors of reconciliation in our relationships in the world. In a few moments, we're going to enact this. We're going to remove these labels and we're going to adopt a new label as a way of expressing this new reality together. But first, let me pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you took the initiative to reconcile us to yourself. And we thank you that your Son, Jesus, went to the cross so that our sins are not counted against us because he took care of them. And we thank you that you accredit his righteous life to us and draw us into a real and living relationship with yourself. We thank you for this, in Jesus' name. Amen.